It's Laban Ditchburn, and I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. The reason for this message was this. If you have your own podcast or your own YouTube channel, or you're seriously thinking about starting something up in order to get your message out into the world, I want to make something available to you. Go to podcastingheroes.com for your free five-day video training. Well, I will share with you five key tips and tricks that will allow you to reach out and connect with the best podcast guests available. And not only just bring them on, but to develop relationships with them that build into know, like, and trust that will eventuate in you being invited onto their platforms if you so desire. You'll be able to learn how to monetize even if you don't have a big audience. Go to podcastingheroes.com. It's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-I-N-G-H-E-R-O-E-S.com. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Become Your Own Superhero. May I introduce to you John Yo, everybody. Good morning, John. Morning. How are you doing? Very, very well. Very blessed. Very full of beans. Very alive and very excited to be talking to you this morning. Very good. And I really wanted to start off for thanking you in many ways, John, for the interactions that we've had previously. Uh, John and I met through the Professional Speakers Association and John has been very instrumental in introducing me to many different speakers and writers and authors and people that have become very influential in my life, most of whom I haven't met, but uh, the likes of Steve Seabold and some other names that uh, you know never even knew existed and, and have since taken on a lot of their principles, particularly like Steve's 177 Mental Toughness Secrets of the world class, which has been very instrumental in my life in the last six, 12 months, and also all the people that I've shared it with as well. So thanks. Great book. It's a very good book. Have you had a chance to meet Steve at this point? Yeah, I did his course. Uh, I'm going to say, I'm going to guess maybe seven or eight years ago. It's still one of the best courses out there. Now, Steve Seabold, for those who don't know, is a... Speaker, author. Yeah, he's he's a mental toughness coach, but he's he's most he he, he most of his lead generations through speaking. So he's, he's a seven figure speaker as well. Okay, brilliant. And John, what do you do? So I'm really around helping people find their voice and then find the courage and skills to articulate that in a meaningful way. So how to be convincing, how to influence, how to engage, how to motivate. Um, people to to do things that um, are in the best of interests of everyone involved, you know, helping people become better person themselves, better version of themselves. And how how did you fall into that, John? How did you end up where you are now? It was a little bit by accident. In that, um, so my my own nature is I'm an introvert and I'm a sh- quite a shy person. So um, being heard, being seen was not one of the things that I, I naturally sort of evoked. And having also an Asian background, that quiet subtlety was kind of a cultural overlay on top of that. But I had a challenge probably in the say, late 90s where um, I needed to convince, and I'm in IT at the time, I was in IT at the time, I was trying to convince people that, that Y2K was a thing, the Millennium Bug was actually a thing. And no one really was taking it seriously. And so the only opportunity I got to speak to senior management about the significance of this was 
corridor conversations, you know, 90 seconds or less. And I got really good at creating messages that were very short, very relevant, very contextually significant, and had to be done in an impactful way. And so I designed this little process, if you want to call it that, that helps yeah. people to do it. And I, I use that from that point forward to really as a platform to help people to, to engage with people and to communicate with people more effectively. And as a result of that, gave me the confidence to start sharing this with others. And so uh, when I joined uh, TED, TEDx Melbourne, um, I, I, that became my thing. It was kind of that skill set then translated into, well, how do you help speakers do that? And that got me into where we met Professional Speakers Australia because a lot of people were professional speakers were asking, well, what was I doing different to other speaker coaches and in, in the way they interact? Because um, a lot of speakers talk about mechanics, you know, especially hero's journey, that sort of stuff. Whereas I actually talk about the human being underneath that and how do you communicate and empathise with the human beings you're connecting with in order to have a meaningful conversation and therefore the connection then becomes more real, I guess. And so that became sort of the impetus of my background and pretty much that's pretty much what I do all day now or every day of the week, which I love. Have you got footage from many years ago that you watch back on occasion and cringe with, with uh, regards to your presentation style? Not going that far back simply because I didn't even have the confidence to record myself back then. Wow. But in there, you know, when I kind of thought, well, this is a thing and I should probably be sort of getting a sense of that, I started doing audio and video. And, yeah, look, it is cringeworthy in some respects. Um, but there's also some nuggets. There's some natural ways I used to say things that I'd lost. So it became a really nice reflection slash, well, what do I build on here and what do I discard? And that then became part of my process, that iterative process of how do you continually evolve, improve and develop by not saying do you do it or not do it, but what aspects are valuable and which bits aren't and then using that as a platform to build and improve. And then if you get these, I'm going to say, significant incremental changes rather than this this wholesale dramatic change, which are handy when they come, but don't come that often. Yeah. It's one of those things where like with some of the coaching that I do, I encourage people to take before photographs so that we can reference mm. the weight loss or the, or the physicality shape change, having gone through my own uh, change. And it's fun for me now to look back, but I've also been blessed with the foresight to be, well, I've always been an extrovert, so I've been recording and been recorded a long, a long period. And I look back at some of the stuff, particularly some of the amateur stand-up comedy that I did with a lot of the self-deprecating language and the really shitty things I used to say to myself and, and cringe. But you're right, there's some real gold dust in there. And from anyone that's interested in becoming a better speaker, what's, what's one piece of advice that you would give any novice that they say, John, how do I deliver this wedding speech? Or how do I deliver this eulogy or whatever it is that they're being you know, entrusted to, to do? Yeah. Well, that's a really tricky question. One thing. I think a lot of people think they clear, they're clear, but they're not. And the way I can test that is could you summarise your entire talk in a single sentence and would it be compelling enough for someone to get excited, including yourself, about it? And if it's not, I would argue that it's not clear. And the challenge, therefore, then is if it's not clear in your head, it will never be clear in their head. They haven't got a chance. And so that's the number one failing with communication. And that's why, you know, a lot of teachers, not memorable. A lot of conferences you go to, not memorable. 
not impactful at all simply because they don't have that clarity. But yet when you find that person, you know exactly what you, you know, you know exactly what they're talking about. And I think it's because of that clarity. Yeah, you're right. And in and, and talking to people, I'll, I'll, um, particularly since I've been moving into this whole speaking business, I'll ask people who the most memorable person that they ever saw. And a lot of people have referenced people like Tony Robbins, which I'll talk to you about your experience in a second. Yeah. But I'll say to them, what, what is it about Tony that made him so memorable? And they'll be like, oh, you know, he really made me feel, you know, special or, or whatever it was. And I say to them, you must understand that Tony has dedicated his whole life to mastering the art of becoming an expert storyteller. Yeah, yeah, totally. His, his speaker capability is extraordinary, no question about it. Uh, he's very deliberate about it. It's very controlled. The environments by which he operates are very controlled so that he can maximise that and maximise the impact because that's his goal. And uh, we don't always have that control. You know, you're in a meeting you're in a corridor conversation, you don't have that type of capability. So, you know, you can adopt a lot of his work and still be effective. Yeah. Uh, if you want to take it to the level he's doing, you have to do the same amount of work he's done, and that's probably a little bit trickier. Yeah, right. But, I don't but you know, that that's my experience of that. And I, I've literally done all his courses. So, you know, I, I'm I'm saying this from the inside, so to speak. Well, you've been fortunate enough to actually be in the same training, or he's delivered training in, in, in intimate groups with you guys. Is that yeah. an experience? We actually, we've actually had lunch together more than once. Um, and Tell us about that. Yeah, well, he's a fascinating guy, but he, everything he does is with a purpose. So without sort of sounding sort of... It's almost, I'm not going to say it's like being interrogated because it's not quite that, but you can tell his mind is trying to understand everything about you, everything that's going on in your life, because he genuinely wants to help, but he, he does it in a very purposeful way. So you have these conversations that are very precise and very um, detailed because of that. Um, he asked me once, um, what did you think of the course that he'd just run? And I gave him some feedback. <laughs> And um, was it good feedback, or was it, you know, oh, look, here's how you can improve kind of stuff? I'm pretty good at being diplomatic. I, I, I said, look, you know, these were things I feel that kind of didn't, didn't, didn't work for me, and that was purely subjective. So he had every reason to ignore it, and to be honest, he kind of did. <laughs> um, but his wife heard, and when she had, she said, "Well, what do you mean by that?" And then um, she went, that's fascinating. I went, oh, thanks. And I just kind of didn't think anything of it. And she moved on. She's much more graceful, much more elegant. And I think the real power behind Tony, to be completely honest. But, you know, Tony's the brand. Um, anyway, she pulled him back, whispered in his ear. He came back and goes, we're having breakfast tomorrow. I went, oh, okay, fine, because it was a multi-day event. And... Uh, I, I got there the next morning and it was him and four other researchers and they literally de deconstructed every sentence that I said the day before. Wow. And they, and, they, and they said, well, what do you mean by that? And we spoke for, I don't know, at least two or three hours. And they wrote down copious amounts of notes and within one year he'd solved that problem. And it was a big problem. It was a big hole. Um, 
And so, um, you know, I admire him because Tony is one of those people that can make dramatic changes in extraordinary small, anything from instant to within 12 months. I've never seen him have a problem last more than 12 months because he's just so methodical about it. And that's what I respect about him. I wish I had that kind of focus and discipline. Well, do you think that you have developed a far better focus and discipline over the oh, years? Because you're a student of life. You've been spending a long time working on yourself as well. Yeah, yeah. Look, um, I, I don't think I'm as methodical as him, but I'm definitely as rigorous. I am 100% committed to this. So there was a point where I was tracking how much I was spending on my own personal development, and I was, you know, per week, because uh, I track kind of like where I spend my leisure time, where I spend my work time, where I spend self time on myself. And I was spending over 20 hours a week on my own self-improvement. And so, um, but it was scattered. And that's what I learned around that, that I was kind of going lots of different directions, bright, shiny object syndrome, which I have a tendency for. But I then thought, well, how do I narrow it? How do I focus it on this one thing and then focus on this one thing? And that's where I made sort of the, everything clicked for me where I could make significant progress in very narrow parts of my life because I was specifically focused. And so this coronavirus is a classic example where I have not, all of my work has been word of mouth and everyone goes, what's your website? I don't have one. I literally from this last two, three weeks, the coronavirus just wrote my own website and I could have paid someone, but I didn't, I have paid someone previously to do a previous website. And to this day, spent way too much money on it and still can't prove that it generated any sales. So I thought, I'm going to learn how to do it. I'm going to learn how to unpack it. I'm going to learn to make it, how to work. And then if I need to scale it or manage it, then I'll do it from that point. And that's what I'm now going to do. I'm going to hand it over to someone to manage uh, from a technical point of view. But I know everything about that website and no one can pull the eyes over me like they have in the past. But I also know it's exactly what I want to achieve. And that's what I've basically been doing for the last three weeks on top of my regular work. And so it's about thin slicing and intensely focusing and then using that as a platform to build the next level. And that was the biggest difference for me from a personal development point of view, where I basically literally at one point took two years off, two and a half years, to be honest, and literally did one of every course that was waved in front of me. And I saw a lot of crap and I saw a lot of amazing stuff and I saw a lot of stuff that was relatively cheap for what I got and some that was kind of like I, I would have paid more if they'd let me. And so I've kind of seen the whole gamut. And so I guess that's where we cross over in terms of how do we explore our life, what's relevant, how do we build capability around that, and then how do we define that for the next level? And that's, that's where the clarity question was when I first came into this. I wasn't clear about why I wanted to go. I was just clear about I wanted to be better. And while that got me better, it didn't get me better in any particular domain. And so foundation was handy, but the direction and what I could build from that, the way I could change my life from that was limited because I got too distracted. And so clarity became the power. Is there anything from all the learning that you've done, John, that has totally flipped your world on its head and you've ended up doing a 180 and never looked back? Oh, gosh, I would say there's lots. I, I think that it, it all is cumulative until one day it makes sense and then everything changes. But it's, it's really around when your being changes, not when your knowing changes. 
and you know it's so easy i mean you, you can see part of my bookshelf here but my previous house i had a bookshelf that was eight meters wide floor to ceiling packed and i'd read every book on it and the only reason i'd stopped buying books at that point is i literally had nowhere else to put them and so you know there's only so much information you can absorb before you actually can kind of work out what the gist of the domain of expertise is, where you actually have to do something about it. And what I was doing was spinning in the knowledge part and not in the doing part. And yeah. so um, I, think that, I think that the one shift is knowing when the knowing and the doing need to happen. And that, that, that doing is when the, your being shifts, which is hard to define but easy to sort of define. Well, sorry, easy to define, but hard to execute. Sorry, better word, better term. I tell you what, John, there's a real common thread with all of the people that I've been speaking to, whether it be on these podcasts, interviewing them out one-on-one or just general conversation. Every single one of them is a furious reader. Furious. And it's something that I've uh, taken on, especially in the last four years. I've read... At last count, it would have been about 150 books in the last 12 months, I think. Definitely. It's excluding all the podcasts and, and everything else. And it, it reminds me, and I was trying to work out where that love of reading came from. And I remember when I was about eight years old when we were growing up in New Zealand and I was there with my two other brothers and single mom and my father who lived down the road gave us a colour TV for Christmas. And I think we had a, had a black and white one prior to that. And I'm not even that old, but uh, we, we misbehaved and mum cut the cord on the telly um, wow. in an act of discipline and, and it was going into winter. And so we had really, it was freezing cold in Christchurch. We had nothing to do, but all we had was a uh, encyclopedia, a Collier's encyclopedia set that my father had bought when my parents were together that I think cost about $2,000 in 1980. So it was a fair chunk of change. And at that time, yeah. there, was no, there was no Google. There was no search engine. This was the data on the world. And it had all of the nonfiction, huge volumes of the stuff, and all of the fiction. And I, I remember reading the entire contents of that, those encyclopedias over the course of the winter. And, yeah. and I now credit that with my love of words and, and my real thirst for reading that I had dulled through years of escapism behaviour. And when that came back, this thirst for knowledge just sort of came back with a ferocious um, zeal. So it's just interesting, that correlation between all the readers, you know. Uh, one quote that sticks in my mind was a Robert Kiyosaki quote, um, who wrote Rich Dad, Poor Dad, um, he said, um, uh, uh, was it poor people have big TVs, rich people have big libraries? I love yeah. it. It's great. It's true. Totally true. It's true. Like it's, it's one of those things where I think um, I've been able to, and, and when you combine it with what's available online now, and you've, you've got to work out, it's an art form to be able to sort the wheat from the chafe or whatever they say. And, but you're right, once you start focusing on something long enough, you start to get a feel for it, and then you get to a point where it's sort of past a point of no return where you're like, I'm now burdened with this information and I must share this with the planet, which sounds like what you've been doing. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, it was kind of a, I, I don't know, it feels like a calling. Yeah, that's the easiest way to describe it. 
but it took a while to get there. And it wasn't because I was looking, well, I was looking for it, but what I actually worked at was that I was actually doing too much stuff that was distracting or taking away my energy, focus, whatever. It took probably maybe 10, 15 years to cull all that BS. And then the obvious became obvious. So that was kind of interesting to me because a lot of people kind of find their thing by looking for their thing. Mine was kind of finding my thing by getting rid of all the crud that I shouldn't have been wasting my time on. And uh, TV was a significant part of that. Uh, and that was kind of a weird realisation. I, <laughs> I kind of discovered that one by accident in that I was a poor backpacker um, and I just moved to London at the time with a working holiday visa. And so there was so much going on that I used to have this four-hour video cassette and I would say I'll record it and watch it on the weekend. And that's what I kind of, well, I did initially. But then the weekends got busy and I didn't get time to watch it on the weekend. And I found that the next week I was just recording over the top of it. I thought, well, my VCR is watching more TV than I am. Why the hell am I doing this? And I got rid of the videotape. And the only reason I had one videotape is I didn't have the money at the time to buy more than one. And that suddenly epiphany is like I'm wasting all this time on something where I could do something, you know, very significant. Well, you've become a storyteller now, John, and, and that that passion or that 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 zeal, whatever you want to call it, has translated into this role that you're playing as the TEDx curator for for Melbourne. Yeah. Now, a lot of people have heard about TED. Some might have even seen some of the TED talks. What is TEDx, and what is your role as a curator there? So. TEDx is an independently licensed event of the TED conference. So the TED conference is two events typically, uh, one based now in California, uh, sorry, now in Vancouver, started in California, and another event called TED Global that moves around. So Rio, last year was Africa, I think. No, hang on, last year was Edinburgh, year before was Africa. Um, So the other one moves around a little bit. So there's two events. The TEDx events are local organisers doing TED-like events in their town. And so as a curator of that, I'm the licensee and curator. So licensee basically means I have a license to do the event, TED-like event in town. The curator is really a selective process. So it's kind of like similar to art curation, what artists complement each other, what themes come together, what ideas coalesce and spurn new ideas. And so my job is to really curate a host of speakers, personalities and ideas hopefully stimulate more ideas because they're in one place. And the, that one place um, might have a whole cross-disciplinary uh, type aspect to it. It might be a researcher, philanthropist, a philanthropist, uh, a scientist, all walks of life that come together that wouldn't necessarily come together and therefore create a unique experience that probably won't ever happen again. And that's the visceral part that I think that distinguishes the brand from the knowledge transfer that you see in the videos. So the question for someone watching this or listening to this would be like, Ted talk, I've always wanted to do that. What do I got to do, John? How do I do this? How do I get on the stage? Yeah. So um, (laughs) that's a big question. You get that question a lot, I'm guessing. Yeah. yeah. Look, no question. The most common question I get, which is I actually wrote an article on LinkedIn specifically for that reason to answer that question. But, for the purpose of this and knowing that no one's gone there yet. We'll share um, that on the uh, in the description box, b- box below post. Don't worry. Great. 
also um, it's it's around how is your idea remarkable outside of your industry or area of expertise? It's got to be remarkable for a broad audience. It can't be I am the only person to have worked out this mathematical problem within my mathematical field because that's an idea. But in Ted's world, it's not an idea worth spreading. In other words, it spreads because of its own natural uh, amazingness or, or distinctiveness, probably a better word. Um, so that's part of it, which then brings to the next point. Well, what's distinctive in my world is really around, you know, it's got to have a strong position and it's got to, have a, got to be able to create a disproportionate amount of attention. In other words, when you say that single sentence, people need to say, whoa, I want to hear more. And so that then becomes really the, the area of focus over and beyond your knowledge, experience and background, uh, your capability, your history, who you know, um, you know, what seven-step system or whatever idea you come out with, because those are just really the information you're going to share. And the challenge with information that you're just going to share is Google is out there. You're competing with Google in terms of, you know, information unique, distinctive information, that's something else. And that's what TED really is about. How do we create these ideas that propagate fresh ideas, fresh perspectives, fresh nuances that weren't there before you went on that stage? Yeah. How do you transform someone rather than inform them? And, and you said something really uh, <laughs> important that stuck with me when, when we met up last year. It's about having an idea that you almost need to be to polarise the audience. Would you agree with yeah. that statement again? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. If you can catalyse or polarise, that's the, that's the disproportionate amount of attention on part I'm talking about. Yeah, and it's could, definitely a critical piece. Yeah, okay. So because you've done one, which I watched, which was a few years uh-huh. ago now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Believe get- it or not, <laughs> as embarrassed as I am to say, that was the very first public talk I've ever done. No kidding. So up until that point, I'd been the coach, the behind the scenes, because I'm a, if you, depending on which tools and profiles, I'm a supporter. I'm not a person who puts myself front and center. I help people achieve their hopes, dreams and aspirations. And so when someone said, you need to do something, we've got a gap. Can you fill it? It kind of landed on my lap. Um, so it was never my intention to be known, but that's kind of, you know, and then so that was the product of that that experience i'm sure that was a character building event in your life well, was it something that they gave you much time to prepare for or do you remember the whole process that you went through uh, i had 10 days uh and no because i at that point and this is the clarity point again i had no idea what i was going to talk about they just said can you talk about something it's like what do you mean it's like i don't know think of something and i like, oh. <laughs> So that's almost the worst case scenario for uh, <laughs> a detail oriented as me, OCD me type person. Um, so, you know, yeah, it was, it was quite an intensive process for that reason alone. And then I go through the classic, what everyone else goes through, your know, nerves, anxiety and self-worth and clarity and refining, refining, refining and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, um, I feel I kind of went through that as a TEDx speaker, which actually did help in terms of helping other people manage their nerves and self-awareness suddenly because they're, quote, unquote, thrown in the spotlight. And uh, TEDx or otherwise, speaking is speaking, it, it can be nerve-wracking. 
Yeah, for sure. And off the back of your advice last year, one of the great names that you referred me to was a guy, Vin Gang, who ran a stage masterclass webinar a couple of weeks ago, which I uh, attended and was a life-changing event for me. And I've been singing its praises ever since. But one of the one of the the many points that I picked up in this course was just going back to your point, the importance of having stories that you've that you've practiced and rehearsed, so that if you ever get put in a position like you were with your TEDx talk, that you can fall back to baseline because you've spent the time re- rehearsing and, and refining this talk that doesn't have ums and ahs. It's smooth. It's consistent, and it's okay to tell the same story over and over and over again. And he talks yeah. about the people that, that haven't heard it, if you've got a great story, are, are really interested to find out what happens. And then the people that have heard the story are alongside you and encouraging you and, and, and almost going along with you. They And they want you to, to finish again and finish on that high, which I thought was really fascinating and it sort of changed my whole my concept on that. So a great story is kind of like your favorite song. You're quite happy to hear it over and over and over again. It's just if it's done well, it's easy to listen, which is the argument against the ums and ahs. But in a social context, that's expected. So it's allowed. Yeah, um, right. In professional context, you wouldn't want to do it too much. You still need to have it. It's still okay occasionally because you're human. If people are expecting you to not be human, that's a whole other conversation. Um, I just did it. These are natural parts of nat- communication. The, the, if you just focus on that exclusively without refining your message or being impactful or having clarity or all the other things you should do as a speaker, that's when counting ums and ahs not helpful yeah uh, so there's a there's a there's a there's a fine balance oh what was it i was going to say something about storytelling but it's 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 gone on me now no it's okay yeah, we come back extremely powerful there's lots of reasons why storytelling there's a lot of anthropological reasons why storytelling is so powerful uh in 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 caveman days or wandering the savannah days um if you didn't listen you almost certainly would miss a detail that would cause you to die because it was literally <laughs> life and death back then. We don't have life and death on a daily basis like <laughs> early humanity did. It's and true, so it's true. the need for storytelling and the need to connect, the need to engage, the need to get someone's attention, while it wasn't a deliberate act, became the default nature. And the reason for that, um, we've gone into it now, so I might as well sort of finish the story. So, if you're around a campfire, you were listening to the story, it was the opportunity to connect as a human being. When you're connecting as a human being with family, tribes were small back then, um, there's an empathy element. That empathy element, the physical part of your brain that's stimulated by emotion is physically in the same part of the brain as long-term memory. So story and empathy and long-term memory then become integral to your survival. Um, so that's why story is important um, from an anthropological point of view and a biological point of view. Uh, and so it's then a question of do you use story to connect and engage? And what people are doing more lately, unfortunately, is using it to engage and manipulate, which is, I think, a, an unethical use of story. 
So there is a balance there, but I think for the most part, most people do a fair job on it. And, you know, our life is stories. And so, you know, history, you could argue, is a story. It's a story from the winning side. Um, so, you know, there's a lot to be said about story and the value of story. Are you, are you talking about uh, mainly politicians that are focusing on that negative side of what you're just referencing? I, I think advertising does it as well. I just yeah. think a lot of people are using story. And, and, and what happens is when people use stuff like Hero's Journey, it then becomes predictable. You see the antagonist, you see the wise wizard, you see the challenge, you see the genre. It's like, oh, here we go again. So, you know, if you attach to the formula, just like the ums and ahs, that's when it loses its, its inherent value. And, and in terms of Curious Journey, it becomes predictable. I was in the movies the other day. Well, late last year when I was at the movies, sorry. Um, <laughs> the other day. Um, four, four ads, all advertisements, all Hero's Journey, all predictable and all about them. We began in a garage in 1984. Who cares? They're doing story for story stake rather than story because it, it meant something. And that's... It gets overused, shall we say. It does, it does. And, and uh, the, I think one way to really mitigate a lot of that risk is becoming or coming from a, an authentic place or genuinely being authentic, which I know sounds a bit like an oxymoron, but yeah. you, you have to because people, people pick up on it. Like not everyone, but a lot of people will pick up on someone being disingenuous and then you lose all credibility about what you're talking about because they're like, this guy's full of shit. Uh, what, well, it's, it's one of the three key pillars. You've got content, which you, con, a lot of people say content is king. I say content is minimum because if content was king, everything you saw in social media would be relevant, important, and worth knowing. Uh, then this context is, are you saying the right thing at the right time, the right person in the right way? In other words, are they ready to listen to it? Um, are they looking for that information now? Is it significant enough then for to prioritise it? Even time of day, other, you know, a 9 a.m. meeting about something that needs to happen versus a 4.55 on a Friday afternoon has a different context. So context is the other part. And then to your point around authenticity, intent, which is do you trust the person you're speaking to? Because if you don't trust them, it doesn't matter what your content is. And so there's three different trust levels, which I don't have time to go into now, in terms of intent that you have to nail before they even trust you. Once you have trust, you have relationship. Once you have relationship, you have rapport. Once you have rapport, then authenticity just naturally flows. But if you have to be something you're not or do something that will become someone you're not, eventually someone will work it out. And besides, it's tiring being someone else. Tiring yes. being something you're not. It is. And, and, you know, for those listening, John, John's a speaking coach and has been doing this and educating people for a long time, been doing a very good, very good job of it. So uh, reach out, reach out to John. All his socials will be listed below. It'll be available on the, on the YouTube page there and uh, on the podcast link. This is really important stuff, John. Like people, when you start understanding that the learning, the art of really storytelling and communicating will impact your life in, in positive ways that you can't even really quantify. It's certainly, you know, it's day-to-day as well and, and it helps you become more interesting. People are like, how do I, how do, why is that guy so interesting? Why is that girl so interesting? And you just pay attention to what they're talking about and very 
quite often I notice they are usually pretty humble, something I've been working on for, for a little while, getting better at. But they usually ask lots of questions about you. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, yeah totally. It's interesting. I think with regards to all that relating back to story, I think the most important story you can tell is the story you tell yourself. And when you do that, does it empower you or does it drag you down? Because that's all it's ever doing. It's one of those two. If it's doing nothing, arguably you could do something else. So the question is, are you empowering yourself? Are you disempowering yourself? And how are you letting the story tell yourself create the emotion, the drive, the focus that distracts you enough to take you where you want to go or take you away from where you want to go? I, I think if you can focus on that, I think then everything everything changes at that point. John, we've got a few minutes. What's your favourite story that you like to tell? Oh, favourite story. So many. So many. Um, I think it's it's not a story. I think it's the way the story is told that then becomes fascinating. You know, we see remakes of movies or remakes of songs and sometimes the the remix is not as good as the original or sometimes it's better than the original. I think the greatest stories have the teller at the centre that, that I guess, um, what's the word? I was going to say transmute, but it's not quite the right word, that transform the listener in ways they couldn't have imagined, that connect in the way they couldn't imagine, that resonated in the way they couldn't imagine. Um, and whether, whether it's for a purpose or just because it's a social interaction, you know, it, the, more, the, more we, the more that I feel that we can explore ourselves and the more that we can help people explore themselves, I think the more we'll really learn to empathise, engage and relate better. And I think that's what stories really, really do well. And, um, you know, go find those stories and find your own story in there that allows you to do that. Yeah, great, great advice, John. I sort of threw you under the bus there a little bit, but, it, you know, that's, that teacher comes through in you and you're like, well, we, you know, here's what other people can use. And the importance of being able to tell a good story and share your message, it's, it's almost your duty to learn how to communicate that story in a way that transmutes from here to their head without any, with any breakdown, because you, people underestimate the power that they have with their own, you know, survival stories or transformation stories as insignificant as they might seem in their own mind. It's up to you to share that and then you'll improve that person's day and then the, the, it will continue from there. That's my, my experience yeah. thus far. Totally, totally. People relate to people who've been through the same challenges. People relate to people who, who've not had it easy and um, because it's that tragedy triumph story that, that really um, connects and brings people together. John, this has been really wonderful and I'd love to sort of close things out uh, with what are you doing over the next 6, 12, 18 months? What's happening in John Yeo's life that we need oh. to know about? Lots happening. So um, I uh, is still in development, but yeah, I was asked to develop some content for an MBA program. So that's probably my biggest focus for the rest of the year. 
uh, it was going to be an online program. I'm not kind of jumping on the bandwagon here. It was it was designed to be that way, but um, as universities go, this it's a bit slower than planned. So that's my biggest focus for this year. Um, and the other one is really around um, how do, how do I connect at scale? I think that's another uh, another track trick that um, some people seem to do better than others. <laughs> that's a whole other conversation. Maybe we can have another <laughs> another podcast about that because I, I think the brands in particular that do particularly well in that domain, um, you could unpack and dissect and explore that till the till the cows come home. Well, have you heard of a guy Ray Perez? You know that name? No. R e y p r e z. No. Check check him out on LinkedIn. He's uh, he's only a young guy. I think he's a little bit younger than me in his late thirties, but he is prolific and brilliant with regards to scale, and is working with some of the biggest names in the speaking okay. industry globally. Ray Perez. I'll put All that right. link below as well. There's so much information out there. It can be a little bit overwhelming trying to trying to go. What's the right thing for me? I think you've got to try and find something that really connects with here. Uh, yeah. it, it seems like going with your gut, really, for lack of a better phrase. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Totally. John, before we wrap this up, would you mind finishing on one of your favourite quotes? Uh, I think this one's very much relevant to speaking and life, which is uh, it's a Ralph Waldo Emerson quote about... Um, if one advances confidently, confidently in the direction of his dreams, he will see success unexpected in common hours. I really love that, John. John Yeo, yeah. it's been an absolute delight. Thank you for coming on. Become your own superhero. Have a blessed day, everybody. Thanks. Chat soon. It's Laban Ditchburn, and I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. The reason for this message was this. If you have your own podcast or your own YouTube channel, or you're seriously thinking about starting something up in order to get your message out into the world, I want to make something available to you. Go to podcastingheroes.com for your free five-day video training. Well, I will share with you five key tips and tricks that will allow you to reach out and connect with the best podcast guests available. And not only just bring them on, but to develop relationships with them that build into know, like, and trust that will eventuate in you being invited onto their platforms if you so desire. You'll be able to learn how to monetize even if you don't have a big audience. Go to podcastingheroes.com. It's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-I-N-G-H-E-R-O-E-S.com.